Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Time for us to talk visual art. There's an exhibition, well, part exhibition, part installation that's on at Marfa Gallery in Abbotsford called Negative Capability, in which all the artists participating were given the same prompt, John Keats's Ode to a Nightingale and Keats's concept of negative capability. Joining us to tell us more are the the work's co-curators, Amy Forbes and Caitlin Mullally. Welcome to you both. Thank you, Richard. So lovely to have... Uh for you to have us on this morning. Thank uh, you. Nice to meet you. <laughs> I just wish it could be in the studio rather than over the phone, but there we go. So this idea of a, of a group artistic show, you've encouraged kind of artists not only to respond to the poem, but as curators, you've tried to, I guess, create a landscape which kind of visitors can enter and almost immerse themselves into. Talk to, tell us a little bit more. Why, for example, begin with uh, the, the Keats poem, Ode to a Nightingale? Well, um, last year, at the start of last year, we um, we had just graduated from... Uh, we studied together at RMIT um, doing the Fashion Honours course, and we needed to we were at a point where we we needed to really disentangle um creativity with with the stress that we experienced going through such an intensive course um so we really gravitated towards the concept of negative capability um because it's it's really about the limitless pursuit of beauty without reconciling fact and reason and accepting doubts and uncertainties um allowing for the natural evolution of ideas and creation and relinquishing creative control. So um, we thought that was a really, really beautiful thing to explore when, when we're at that point and also at the beginning of the pandemic when we had lots of time on our hands and there was, you know, lots of heavier issues. Um, at the time, we, we wanted to create this, this landscape that was an escape, a positive escape, and use creativity in a really positive way. And, Caitlin, tell, yeah. us, tell us about some of the artists who are participating in the exhibition. Um, so we've got a few um, on the list, which is very exciting. It's a really beautiful group that have come together. Um, we've tried to collect lots of different mediums. So um, we're exploring, we've got Moving Image, so Tasman Spicer and, and Tara Gadza, they're um, working together and they've created a, a pretty amazing film. That, so they wrote the script and created everything as a response to this uh, concept. Um, and then um, we've got Lou Wheeler, who is an amazing sound artist, and they've created they have created five different soundscapes, so one for each room. So as you travel through, there's five different rooms throughout the, in this landscape. And then there's Loki Patera, who are a duo that create jewellery from Sydney. They've created a piece and a poem. Um, Jolie is doing the lighting, Jolie Boardman. Um, really, it's really sort of bringing everything together. Emmy Orbach is an amazing sculptural installation artist. She works with crystalline, uh, crystal um, sculptures, and it's, it's really beautiful work. Um, Brigitte La is a multimedia artist and she's um, contributed a couple of pieces as well. And then Beatrice Warhol, who is a visual artist. So she's um, contributing. Um, and then Victoria Punterary and Lucy Prudence have, are working together. To, they're the ones that um, have created the spatial architecture um, and the whole landscape, like the physical world that you walk through. 
Um, and then as the curators, we're also exhibiting our own work. So we've got our own brand um, called Veils and Cirrus. And so we're, um, we're putting in a piece in each room as well, as well as curating the whole exhibition. Now, the challenge for uh, an exhibition like that in terms of curating it is, given that you have so many different aspects and elements, as we've heard, uh, yes, there's the spatial architecture of the space overall, there's the lighting to, to highlight different elements. But because you've got so many artists working across different media, music, film, sculptural installation and jewellery, there'd be the risk, surely, that one element will dominate another or that it won't blend into the whole that you've imagined at the start of this creative process. So, Amy, talk to us about how you and Caitlin have worked together curating this to make sure that no one aspect dominates, that it does indeed blend into a harmonious whole. It's been a really beautiful experience. Um, We've really tried to let negative capability, like the actual concept, dictate how we've curated everything and let it naturally evolve. So we've wanted it to be very collaborative. It's quite a core um, ethos with our brand. Um, so we've, we've really let everyone sort of take the idea um, and choose a part of the poem that they really gravitated towards. Then we've created the landscapes and then we've asked them to include their work in which of, which of the rooms they really wanted to. Um, and then as for how it's naturally evolved and worked together, it's been really, really interesting seeing it all come together, but it's worked really beautifully. Um, and I, sitting in the space right now, I, I don't feel any any one aspect sort of dominates, which is really beautiful. Yeah, it's a very beautiful, like, natural evolution of work from piece to piece, uh, and they all sort of blend together, and it's, it's, quite, a, it's quite a lovely experience. And we also um, selected a group of collaborators who um, are all local creatives that we've worked with before, and we all bounce off each other really well. Um, so there was never a doubt in our minds that this would come together in, in, a, in a really beautiful way with a, a great cross-pollination of ideas. Now, I'm certainly intrigued just by the different kind of, and again, disparate elements of the work. You could create an exhibition given that uh, your own practice looks at wearable art, for example, um, amongst uh, part of your practice. Uh, you could have created an exhibition solely around wearable art, around jewellery, and then asked somebody to create a soundscape to accompany it. But it really feels yeah. like you've decided that you didn't want to be limited to one art form, one idea. Uh, it, it certainly sounds like an ambitious project. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's, that's a good point. Um, this is actually a really big part of our ethos. So um, we always wanted to disentangle, you know, fashion with the notion that it can't be presented as art and it always has to be presented on the body, on the body in, in a traditional runway format. We've, we've always looked at fashion from a, a very critical perspective and for us it's really important to explore cross-pollination um, across creative networks and we really feel that that's the way forward with, with um, forms of fashion presentation but also this art presentation in general. Uh, if people want to learn more about uh, your individual practice, for example, given that you're cr- uh, creating the work, the website uh, is www.veilsofcirrus. Uh, Cirrus presumably referencing kind of veils of cirrus cloud drifting across the sky. Yeah, correct. Thank you. 
it's not a common um, word that people know. So I'm glad you, you know the reference. Yes, it is referencing the cloud formation. And the exhibition slash installation itself is showing at Marfa Gallery, M-A-R-F-A, Marfa Gallery, Level 1, 288 Johnson Street in Abbotsford. And have you taken over the entire space? We have, yeah. So it's um, the gallery space is quite an open, big room, and it's up on the, the first floor. And, yes, we've taken over the whole space and then created the um, fictional landscape within it. It's opening uh, what I believe tomorrow night, Friday night, the 23rd. Yeah, very exciting. Tomorrow we open at 5. We're doing it in time slots but we're very excited to say we're sold out tomorrow. It's a ticketed event um, that's available through um, our Facebook event um, page. There's a link to Eventbrite. Um, But then we also have Saturday um, selling as well so it's open all day Saturday from 2 until 10 so people are welcome to to book in a time for, for that. Um, and then we're also doing a pop there'll be a pop-up shop as well um, it'll be available throughout the whole exhibition but on Sunday will be that'll be a focus so there'll be a store here and um, every artist involved is contributing uh, like a memento um, and just a small aspect of, of their work to be able to purchase um, yeah so it's pretty exciting we've also got some amazing sponsors too so um, Confira Maru um, are have given us a beautiful selection of natural wines. Um, Bodrigi are uh, giving us beers, and the Good Brew have generously contributed some kombucha as well. So lovely um, drinks on offer as well. So that and is- also just on, on the memento shop, I just wanted to add that, um, for example, um, one of the one of the senses that we're exploring in this space is actually scent. And um, we'll have, you know, little bottles of scent from each room available to take home as well. (laughs) And uh, you mentioned the booze sponsors. Uh, Refreshments are provided as part of the ticket price. Tickets ranging from $15 to $20. Uh, So the opportunity to then enter and explore and wander through the space. As we said, the exhibition uh, slash installation, Negative Capability, is showing at Marfa Gallery, Level 1, 288 Johnson Street, Abbotsford. It is a ticketed exhibition, uh, uh, which also then allows uh, COVID-safe rules to be adhered to in terms of the number of people in the space. Uh, And Amy and Caitlin, you mentioned that if people want to book, they need to go through your Facebook events page. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. There's a link to Eventbrite and you can just choose your time slot from there. Yeah. So just negative capability on Facebook. Um, And we will have some limited tickets available at the door, um, but not many. Only if um, we haven't sold out prior. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. yes, search for Negative Capability on Facebook for find, to find the Facebook event page. Link there to Eventbrite to book a ticket and then wander in and explore and immerse yourself in an exhibition that includes visual art, multimedia, sculptural installation, jewellery, music, film wearable art and more. I've been chatting with Amy Forbes and Caitlin Mullally from Vales of Cirrus who have curated negative capability at Marfa Gallery in Abbotsford. Amy and Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us on the program. Melbourne's own Triple R. One of the things about my day job, I work at the website ArtsHub, artshub.com.au. Here at Triple R, I tend to focus on what's happening in Melbourne, but at ArtsHub, I get these tantalising media releases from all over the country about shows that I think, oh, if only I could fly up and see that, that looks great. One of those shows, uh, a couple of years ago, I got um, an advanced media release about a new Australian musical called Fangirls, and I thought, that looks intriguing. And then it got rave reviews, and then it had a return season, and then it's been around the country, and now, finally, it's coming to Melbourne. Uh, I'm joined on the line by the show's creator, Eve Blake. Eve, 
Thanks for joining us here at Triple R. Oh my gosh, thanks for having me. I'm so flattered that you've been following the show. Well, it's one of those things, it's the frustrating side of my day job going, this show is getting rave reviews at Belvoir in Sydney and I can't get up there. Or And then I think it had, what, a Queensland theatre season and then it came back to Sydney. So it's obviously resonated with people hugely. Let's step back a moment. It's a show which taps into the passion of teenage fans and in particular it's a celebration of the fact that I guess of the traits of teenage girls that are so often derided by some sniffy music critics for example but instead of (laughs) mocking that you've dived into it and embraced it and celebrated it wholeheartedly. Completely. I mean, look, what fascinated me is um, people often ask me, like, were you a fan girl? I wasn't. I, I was an adult woman who, fa- who found a 13-year-old girl who told me she loved Harry Styles so much that she would um, slit someone's throat to be with him. And it stopped me in my tracks, right? I thought, God, that's... I, I would have said, I, that's, that's insane. She's crazy. I have to find out more. So I started researching fangirls, and I thought, oh, wow, fangirls are so mad. This will make such an interesting high-stakes show. But then I had my mind completely changed because I noticed that in all the press coverage about fangirls, I would frequently see that if journalists were, yeah, talking about young women and their interests, they would use words like hysterical and crazy and over the top. And that certainly is the, like the dominant reputation of, of young girls who are quote unquote obsessed with things. But I suddenly realized we don't use those words when we're describing young men who are really passionate about sport, right? We use words like passionate and loyal and we say that's the love of the game. And I was like, oh my gosh, oh my goodness, we've got to talk about how we talk about and to young women and who we tell them that they are. Um, and who we tell them they might become. So that's really what the show is about. But, God, that sounds so serious. It's also just, like, a lot of fun. <laughs> so you've kind of created this uh, high-energy show uh, and really, tr- in some at some points, trying to create the idea, the, the, a, a, a pop concert on stage, the kind of exactly. one-direction style show that would have people screaming their lungs out. And fandom goes back... Kind of to the, I mean, anybody listening who is who was old enough to remember Beatlemania, for example, will know that this is not a new phenomenon. But it still has been derided for decades, and now you've come along and you're celebrating that. Well, yeah, I mean, I think anyone who's been a teenager knows that it's like the best of times, it's the worst of times, right? I knew if I was making a show, it had to feel like as adrenal as it felt to be 14 or like, you know, as um, high stakes as a first crush feels. And so for me, I was like, well, it has to feel like the most hectic pop concert you've ever been to. Um, And then like, you know, little did I know that then we would be performing the show um, in a pandemic when there has been no concerts for a year. And it's been so interesting, right? Because audiences this year on tour have been going off like you can tell no one's been at a concert for a year because it's a musical but people are some people are showing up with like signs like it's a pop concert people are screaming and um and cheering along and yeah it's been really exciting in terms of writing the show itself uh did you have a strong musical background previously Uh, because writing a an australian musical uh, or a piece of musical theatre, uh, Australia doesn't necessarily triumph in this area internationally. We keep importing big American shows rather than focusing on our own. So tell us about the development mm. process, the creation of the show and the songs within it. 
Yeah, sure. Well, you know, interestingly, like, I actually still don't play a musical instrument. And I came to this as, a pl- to, like, two things, a playwright and someone who'd been a teenage girl and wanted to talk about it. Um, and I taught myself how to write music for this show on the computer. Um, but what it means, I think, is that, you know, a lot of musicals you'll hear have been written by someone who, for example, is brilliant at the piano or maybe really good at guitar. And so the score will be built off the back of, like, one instrument, which is the key idiom of the show. Whereas for this, I really had a blank canvas. So I thought, okay, what does it feel like to be a teenager? Like I said, it feels like... Like a, it, like a stadium, a screaming stadium of feelings, right? But I also thought, you know, reading all of these tweets that I was reading, researching it about Harry Styles and One Direction and Justin Bieber, I was like, wow, this is kind of spiritual, right? I'm, I'm reading all these devotional tweets, and what would it feel like if you went to a show that sounded like something between a cinematic score, like at the biggest pop concert you've ever heard, but also kind of had this beautiful um, heart-melting girls' choir at the center of it? that kind of sounds like this angelic church choir in, like, the Church of Harry. So I feel like the score that you hear at the end, yeah, it doesn't sound like other musicals that are out there because it's been made in this real kind of, uh, with this, like, mashup sensibility. And in terms of the look of the show, uh, partially because this uh, was not a big commercial musical but a piece of theatre and it's also, it has to be able to tour, the the set design... uh, features what a number of large screens for example so you can use Mm -hmm. uh kind of video to capture some of the color and the movement and the and the the vox pop style approach to interviewing fans but uh it's nonetheless got to be relatively portable i imagine in order to get it around the country yeah, well, what's interesting is, like, we first, um, you know, did the show at Queensland Theatre and then Belvoir, which are both, like, two, like, subsidised theatre venues with subscribers, where you come and you see a play that maybe runs for, like, six weeks. But what's interesting is our director, Paige, is a genius because she's like, I'm going to figure out how to, on this budget, deliver not just a musical but, like, a Beyonce concert. And when you step in, there are these giant LED screens that do 800 more things than you expect that they could in the show and, and a stage with hol- that is covered in hollow graphic glitter so it's really you you step into the theater and you're like oh there's not much on stage but then when it bursts to life like the places that that page takes you it's it's really exciting and tell us about the cast in the show as well you were originally performing in fangirls but you've since stepped out yes i'm obsessed with this cast i'm so obsessed with them and what's great is seven out of nine of them are from melbourne so like you know these cast are playing teenagers so necessarily we had to get a bunch of young people but everyone is kind of fresh out of uni this is their first big gig and they really like it's such a star making performance for all of them um like in melbourne now playing the lead role is karis oka who is just anyone who's seen the show will tell you it is like a star is born she's unbelievable and i'm really excited for melbourne to fall in love with her and the whole cast um they're just like they're worth the ticket price alone now i've also heard great things about uh james medusa who i think is playing what a a kind of they are extraordinary i had heard great things about them they were cast in a musical which uh everybody's talking about jamie which was one of the 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 shows that seemed to fall victim to covid shutdowns and lockdowns unfortunately but yes james medusa clearly someone uh to to keep an eye on and particularly in this show Uh, tell us about their character oh well what's really fun right is it's a show called fangirls but it's not just about 
um, girls. Like, there's all these other characters that you get to meet, including so our protagonist, Edna. She's 14, and her best friend online is someone we only know as Salty Pringle. And they are a queer kid in Utah who is furious that their favorite boy band only ever sings about girls. Like, what about singing about boys? You know what I mean? So they just kind of want to queer the world. They want the world to be more inclusive and safe space. But they, they're, like, fabulously enterprising and... Um, like, that's, that's the character that James plays. But what's fun, too, is, like, there's also a, a really beloved character is the character of Edna's mom, because this is also a show about what it's like to raise a teenager who you cannot get to look away from their screen um, and who spends a lot of time online and you don't necessarily know if that's a safe space for them. So, yeah, it's I, what I love is, like, yes, Paris is a star, but, but also audiences tend to fall in love with all of the really peripheral characters as well. It's a real ensemble piece. And it's not only a real ensemble piece, but it's a show that uh, has received rave reviews. The the public seem to love it and the critics seem to love it as well. And sometimes uh, they can have very, very separate opinions of shows. The, the fact that the review in Limelight just starts, I'd heard the rumours, met the people who experienced when it came here before, seen the look in their eyes, believe the hype, the fangirls phenomenon is real. Uh, it really oh. does, it seemed to... You seem to have captured something here which is resonating with so many different age groups, backgrounds, people from uh, who would normally prefer a, a kind of, quote, well-written play, unquote, to something that is so vibrant and youth-focused but uh, passionate and understanding all simultaneously. Oh, well, look, that means a lot. I mean, I, when I wrote this show from the outset, I was like, you know what? It'd be very easy to write a show, or it'd be too easy to write a show that's just for teenage girls, right? Or that would just make fun of them. And my goal was to try and figure out how to make a show that would get you to laugh at these girls only to cry with them. And ultimately a show that, like, my 70-year-old dad would come to and cry his eyes out in. So it's been really special to have people of all ages come up to me and go, that's me, that's my story, I get it, you know, I connect with that. Um, so thank you, that's, that's the dream. As a fan myself, I'm a big Doctor Who nerd and nothing gets me more excited than, I don't know, news that a, a lost episode from the 1960s has been rediscovered. Oh, really? Uh, I, I collect Doctor Who books and toys and, and have since I was a kid. So right. I, I'm, a, I'm an adult fan and I suspect that fangirls, I will see part of myself reflected up on stages as I was when I was a teenager uh, and I cannot wait to, to kind of re-experience that, ex- that when Fangirls comes to Melbourne. It is on at the Playhouse Theatre from the 28th of April to the 9th of May as part of a national tour. Tickets are now on sale via artcentremelbourne.com.au. Uh, so jump online to book tickets for Fangirls, as I said, showing from the 28th of April to the 9th of May. I've been chatting to its creator, Eve Blake. Eve, thank you so much for joining us here at Triple R. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Joanna Murray-Smith is an Australian playwright whose work has been produced not only by the Melbourne Theatre Company and many other theatre companies around the country. Uh, Her work's also been staged on Broadway, the West End and the Royal National Theatre in London. Joanna Murray-Smith, thanks for joining us here at Triple R. Thank you so much for having me. Lovely to be back. Well, after a very strange year last year in which... 
I remember in the way that irritating and sometimes delightful way that Facebook will say, do you remember this memory from a year ago or two years ago? It recently brought up a, uh, a meme that I'd shared, which uh, basically said, it's a global pandemic. No one is expecting you to write a masterpiece. Uh, I think there was, there was pressure on writers and artists to go take advantage of this unexpected downtime and, and write a, a symphony or a, or a novel or a magnum opus. Yes, it was good to have the writing time, but it was also a difficult time for many emotionally turbulent and unsettling to write in. What was your experience of the pandemic as a writer? Will we see the results of that in Berlin, the new play, or will we have to wait a couple of years perhaps to see how it's changed you? Yeah, I think it's probably a matter of waiting and seeing because, uh, you know, primarily I think writers uh, use every aspect of experience and your own sensibility and your own emotional reactions in your work, um, but it often takes a little while before those things actually filter through. Um, and I think the primary value of, if there were, uh, and there were silver linings to the pandemic, the primary silver lining for me was being able to absorb rather than produce. So I set myself a little mission of reading memoirs um, for as long as COVID lasted. If I wasn't going to meet people any other way, I'd meet them through the pages of books and kind of found the experience really transformative and inspiring. Uh, they weren't the memoirs of famous people. They were more like famous memoirs in terms of their sort of depth of sensibility. So they were by people who had survived incredible tragedy and, and, and um, uh, big life events. At, but beautifully written. And uh, so it was actually, that was very transformative for me. Um, and I'm sort of feeling now a little bit agoraphobic about coming back into the world. I, I was saying to my husband yesterday, I've never found it so hard to go to previews before. Um, and it's not the play or the production, it's just being back out in the world again and feeling, I suppose, judged. I can understand that because we spent so much time indoors, isolated, uh, distancing socially and to a degree kind of emotionally from people as well. It kind of it felt unsafe mm. to interact. Now, tonight, you've got an opening night of, uh, of your play, I believe. So uh, you'll be kind of, uh, out, out into the world and in a throng of people in a foyer. I know, it does feel a little weird. And I have another opening night next week in Sydney because my almost my earliest honour is on uh, is opening in Sydney at the same time as my most recent play, Berlin, is opening in Melbourne. Um, so it's sort of a double whammy. I mean, look, I'm incredibly grateful that theatre is coming back again. I'm very conscious of the fact that Australia is kind of at the forefront of theatre coming back, that... Um, you know, my plays have been optioned for productions all around the world and none of those productions that, you know, are yet to emerge or even to be a whisper about getting them back on the road. So um, I'm conscious that it's going to be a, a slow process and I should be grateful, incredibly grateful for this opportunity. And in fact, you know, there are moments when you're sitting in the theatre alone or almost alone watching the actors in a dress rehearsal um, and feeling the incredible excitement that a playwright feels when they're seeing something that began as a 
tiny little flicker of an idea three or four years ago. Um, now fully dimensional, you know, in all the collaborative flourishes of lighting and sound and really superb performances in this case. Um, and it's, you know, it's, you, you are reminded once again of why you do it and why it's such a privilege to do it. To tie in some of the things you were speaking about earlier, you, uh, you said that the impact of lockdown, the effect of it, we may have to wait several years to see how that plays out mm. in your writing. Uh, so ideas take time. Uh, but you also mentioned you'd been reading memoirs of people who survived incredible tragedy. Uh, your yeah. uh, your mother uh, escaped uh, terrible tragedy in Europe, the, the Holocaust, uh, coming to yeah. Australia at a young age. You have written uh, about a young Jewish woman haunted by uh, World War II in the past, very, very early in your career. It's taken a while, perhaps, again, for that to filter through. This new play, Berlin acknowledges the, the tragedy, the history of the city of Berlin that people live with every day. Uh, and, but you've written that as a two-hander in which two young people are, are also grappling with love and perhaps at the heart of the yeah. play asking the question, how can you celebrate and fall into the abandon of love when you live in a city in which there are literally plaques on on almost everywhere you turn, acknowledging who lived in this house previously and were exterminated during the Holocaust. That's right. Um, and that was really from uh, the idea was sparked from going to Berlin and being astonished at how present the past was and also how engaged my kids were with the past. And I realised that, you know, just because they were teenagers, or I think uh, my daughter wasn't even a teenager yet, that the past felt very present to them in Berlin and they were very conscious of the they went off to the stadium where Hitler stood on the steps and uh, insulted Jesse Owens and, you know, all of those iconic photographs they had seen and saw again in the memorials in Berlin um, were really within the lifetime of their grandmother. And I think that gave them a really uh, a huge shock. Um, and so then thought, well, what is it like? What is it like now? What sort of uh, antagonism remains from the war for young people? Um, and, and then I guess I push that to its uh, furthest degree, which is two young people meeting in Berlin on a night, falling into mad long infatu mad infatuation um, all night long. And yet one is a German and one is a Jew. And how does that result? over the connection that they make with one another. Uh, is it still a presence? And if it is a presence, is it insurmountable? Um, and at what point is it not insurmountable? And do we want it to ever be insurmountable? I mean, should, should the younger generations feel free of the past? Or is it important that the past remains? These, these are kind of the fundamental philosophical questions um, in the play. It's also a way of that you are exploring your Jewish cultural heritage. You're culturally Jewish, not mm. religiously Jewish, uh, as I understand it. Um, with, uh, and given that Judaism is passed down through the matrilineal line, that is a factor. But this is really one of the first times you've, to my knowledge at least, that you've not grappled with the question of Jewish identity, but centred it within a work dramatically and emotionally. No, that's absolutely right. Um, and 
I don't quite know why. Um, I don't quite know why I haven't gone there before. Uh, perhaps it was too much, too intense while my mother was alive. Um, perhaps I felt the responsibility subliminally was sort of too great while she was alive to get it right. She was a ferociously intelligent um, and very vital uh, woman intellectually and culturally, and maybe I was intimidated by that on some level. But the time has come now, it's eight years since she died. Um, I'm not re I wasn't really conscious of channeling her as I was writing the play, but now that I'm sitting in an audience watching it, I realise that I have not just her, but also family stories uh, that were passed down. And I suppose that the split in the play between um, the, wasp, uh, the waspish sensibility and the Jewish sensibility is really me right down the middle because my father was a, you know, kind of upper-middle-class Church of England, um, you know, old Geelong grammarian. And, uh, and my mother was a Polish-Jewish um, refugee. So, um, you know, there within me is already probably a, a, a predisposal towards seeing everything from multiple cultural perspectives. I mean, not that they were divided, about the war, of course, my father was a kind of honorary Jew in lots of ways, but um, but still, our cultural backgrounds inevitably make us more or less sensitive to certain angles of remembering and forgetting. The play Berlin is a two-hander. We have a, a young German woman and an Australian Jewish man meeting, falling in love. Uh, so those two characters perhaps represent different parts of you. But it's not certainly not the first two-hander you've written. This is uh, uh, Switzerland is just one example. What is it about the structure of a of a two-hander that makes it so intriguing for you as a playwright, as a as a dramatic nut to crack? For example, there's a lot of pressure on the actors to maintain mo dramatic momentum throughout the work, but equally there's pressure on the playwright to make sure that a a, a two-hander feels self-contained rather than stale. Absolutely. I, I am never intellectually kind of conscious of how many characters I'm going to incorporate in a play. Usually an idea comes with the number of characters kind of embedded. Um, so it's not so much a choice as kind of um, uh, uh, bequest um, from, from my imagination. Uh, but I do think that there is something very appealing to me about writing two-handers. I love the intensity that two voices bring. They can't drop for a moment. They have to be um, absolutely vigilant in terms of listening to one another and persuading one another and reacting to one another. Um, and there isn't really a pause in the entire 85 minutes of the play. Uh, it's just um, uh, an assault, really, uh, uh, or it should feel like an assault on both your intellect and your emotions. Um, and it's certainly the actors. And I love that intensity. I think it plays well to the kind of scenes that I'm interested in to do with relationships and often quite big moral conundrums. And as well as that, it's very hard. It's hard to write a two-hander. And... I think there is something very satisfying when it works, which, of course, it doesn't always. And uh, 
it doesn't always every night. Um, but when it does work, um, then there's a great feeling of satisfaction that with the kind of minimal amount of materials, you've made something that is very engaging. It's a bit like making, you know, a perfect omelette. You've just got a bit of butter and eggs, but um, there's nothing better when it works. <laughs> so, um, I, it's kind of that feeling that, oh, very, very simply... I've managed to cast a spell, and uh, and of course, you know, you by by longing for that and aiming for that and having that ambition, you also risk um, pretty catastrophic failure because the moment one actor lets themselves down, they let down the entire enterprise, and you can feel that spell break in front of you, and you know that the audience are no longer held in the palm of these, these two actors' hands. So it's a terribly fragile operation, but the payoff is very big when it works. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with playwright Joanna Murray-Smith, whose new work, Berlin, is on at the MTC, running through until the 22nd of May in the South Bank Theatre. Now, I say a new play, but you wrote this, Joanna, I think, what, three years ago. It's part of the MTC's Next Stage commissioning program, um, uh, which is a, a really, I think, laudable dedication to new Australian writing. As a playwright, how important is a commission? How important is a commissioning program like Next Stage? It's very important because, you know, it's such a... I mean, not to not to be too self-indulgent about it, but it's quite a lonely life being a writer, you know, never more so, I guess, than last year. Uh, yes, of course, you have periods of great collaboration and it's very social and it's lots of fun and you're hanging out with great and interesting people, which is partly, I think, why we're all attracted to it. But there are long periods of isolation and long periods of self-doubt. And if you don't have the self-doubt, then you're not much of a writer. So having that external vote of confidence even at my age, at my stage of writing, is incredibly important. To have someone say, this idea is so exciting, we can't wait to see the outcome, um, and we're getting behind you all the way, makes a phenomenal difference to your ability to sit down and write and belief that you can write something that will be um, rewarding. the audience and it's really uh, you know a very different experience to writing a play on spec so to speak once you've got a company behind you it it just gives you it's like there's a little kind of flame burning the whole way through writing the play and it never really goes out because even in your lowest moments you know that there is a whole team of people who are invested in what you're doing and are there to offer you know, support, love, most importantly, money. (laughs) Joanna Murray-Smith's latest play, Berlin, has its opening night at the MTC South Bank Theatre tonight. The season then runs through until the 22nd of May. You can book by jumping online, mtc.com.au, or by calling 86880800. That's 86880800, or mtc.com.au to see Joanna Murray-Smith's Berlin. Joanna, thank you so much for joining us here at Triple R. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 